Let us come before God this morning once more in prayer. Let us pray. Holy One, our strength in suffering and our hope for salvation, lift up your word of life and pour out your spirit of grace so that we may follow faithfully all the way to the cross. We pray these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. And I invite Deanna to come forward to read for us the scriptures. Good morning, everyone. So the first reading is going to be from the Old Testament, um, Genesis chapter 7, um, verses 1 through 7, 15, 16, and 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. And I will make my covenant between me and you and will make you exceedingly numerous. When Abram fell on his face and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the ancestor of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land where you are now an alien, all the land of Canaan, for perpetual holding, and I will be their God. God said to Abram, As for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall give rise to nations. Kings of people shall come from her. The second reading is from the Old Testament, um, Psalm chapter 22, verses 23 to 31. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All your offspring of Jacob, glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all your offspring of Israel. For he did not despise or abhor the affliction of the afflicted. He did not hide his face from me, but heard when I cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will pay before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before him. For dominion belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. To him, indeed, shall all all those who sleep in the earth bow down. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust and shall live for him. Posterity will serve him. Future generations will be told about the Lord. And proclaim his deliverance to a people yet unborn, saying that he has done it. Praise the Lord. The third reading is from the New Testament, Romans chapter 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise that he would inherit the world did not come to Abraham or, or to his descendants through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. If it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, Faith is null, and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, neither is there violation. 
The fourth reading is from the New Testament, Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed. After three days, rise again. He said all this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. This is the word of the Lord. Be to God for his love to us. Friends in Christ, what I say to you this morning is proclaimed in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Spoiler alert. I, I don't think we need one here. We know how the story ends. But but we hear those words in the media often, don't we? If you're watching a sporting event that's being played somewhere overseas at an odd time of day, maybe it's you're following the Olympics or some international hockey tournament, and the announcers on the radio, before... They give the score. They will say, now we're going to talk about the game. And if you've recorded it, well, just turn down your radio for the next 30 seconds so that you don't miss the surprise at the end of your game. Spoiler alert. When the movie reviewer is giving his opinion on some new release that's just hit the cinemas. Remember when new releases used to hit the cinemas? Um, hopefully once more again soon. They will give the warning, spoiler alert, that, that what they are about to say in some way reveals a significant piece of the plot and they don't want to, to, dis, to destroy your enjoyment of the movie. So again, they encourage you, turn down the radio for the next couple of minutes while we talk about this particular aspect. Or the new release of a book comes to the library. And so you try to avoid all of your friends who are fans of the same author or the friends that you have in your book club until you have read the book unless, so that you don't talk to them about it and they don't give away the ending. Spoiler alert. Now one of the challenges, as I mentioned, for us as Christians, as we read scripture, is we know what the ending is already. We've heard the story from Scripture so many times that really there's not much surprise or delight left in the plot of how God is unfolding 
his, his plan for creation. The story of the travails of Jonah we've heard since we were children. The conversion of the Apostle Paul we know too well. They just don't have that same delight and surprise that perhaps they once did when we were younger and newer to the faith. But I can tell you this. Having led numerous vacation Bible schools over the years and in many different places, the children still delight in the story of Jonah. And Jonah being vomited up upon the shore by the great fish, stinking of fish and bleached white. But for most of us, we know how the story ends. And that knowing how the story ends affects how we interact with the characters that we encounter there. We are especially aware of this reality, I think, as we come to this morning's text from the Gospel according to Mark, Peter's great confession and his failure to comprehend. It's tempting, isn't it, for us to judge Peter because, well, it always seems that Peter just doesn't quite get it right, does he? Peter is always struggling. Peter rushes and says to Jesus, It's good that we're here. Let us build three tents, one for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you. At the moment, at the, at the scene of the transfiguration that we read a couple of weeks ago. Peter and his certainty that surely, Lord, he would not deny you. Hours before the crucifixion. And today, Peter and his misunderstanding about Jesus' messiahship. Jesus has been with his disciples for some time, traveling from village to village, healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching the people and opening their minds to the word of God in a way that they had never experienced before. And so here in this moment, as we heard Deanna read it just a moment ago, Here in this moment, Jesus turns to his disciples and he says to them, after witnessing all of these things and after all of the interactions that they had had with people in the villages who had crowded around to see Jesus, who were people saying that Jesus is? And and perhaps most importantly, who do the disciples say that Jesus is? After they toss around several options, well, some say maybe Moses, and some say, well, maybe Elijah. Peter seems to be bold and just blurts out, you are the Christ. He seems pretty sure about what that means, too. You see, the children of God had been waiting for a Messiah for a very long time. And so they knew what the Messiah was going to be like. He was to be the liberator of God's people from the, and the one sent to free them from the bondage of this world. For the people who listened to Jesus and encountered him in the villages in which, through which he traveled, the Messiah would come and free them from the oppression of the Roman Empire and allow the people to live in peace. That's who the Messiah was. And they imagined that he would be a great general 
or a great political leader, or maybe both. They imagined a great Davidic king, one who was just like David, because during the, the, the long history of the children of God, it had only been during David's reign, and yet but for a short time, that the twelve tribes of Israel had actually been united together and lived under their own authority. We have to remember, as we come this morning to this text, that that is who Peter was looking for. That is who anyone in Peter's day, if you said to them Messiah, that is who they would have been looking for. And it is against that vision that Jesus redefines the meaning of the word Messiah this morning. Jesus begins at the end of the story, and then he works his way back to Peter's confession. Jesus reinterprets what it means for him to be called the Christ by looking at it through the lens of the cross. Mark tells us, Then Jesus began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all of this quite openly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, Jesus rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. The image of the suffering Christ was not what Peter was expecting. It was not what the children of God had been expecting. Not in that day, not centuries before. And I think it's fair to say, not today. Even the great reformer Martin Luther struggled with that, with, with the pull between the idea of Christ the suffering Messiah on the one hand and Christ the victor on the other. And he struggled to make, to, to, to make those two images fit together. Here in the middle of Mark's gospel, as Jesus' public ministry comes to an end and his journey to Jerusalem begins, it is as if Jesus must begin all over again as he teaches his disciples how their freedom will be won. It will not be won with a sword, but with a cross. There will be no adulation, only cries to crucify him. This challenge to see Jesus as the Christ who suffers and dies is a challenge not just for Peter. It is our challenge too. For we're always looking at Jesus in the mirror. We are always looking for a Jesus that looks like we expect him to look. In the creation story, we're told that God created humanity in God's own image. But as humans, we always get that just a little bit backwards, I think. There's a real temptation, isn't there, to kind of flip the analogy. Because God is hard to comprehend. God is bigger 
by our imagining. By very definition, God is bigger than anything we can dream of. And that's a problem for us as humans. How do you imagine the unimaginable? As a result, we have to make God fit into our bo- the boxes of our own brain so that we can comprehend who God is. That's how we process information as human beings. We encounter things and we make them fit with those things that we have encountered in the past in our own minds. The challenge with that, however, is that when we do it, God begins to look like us. We begin to create God in our image and not us in God's. God becomes the God in the mirror that we see each morning as we shave or each morning as we put on our lipstick. The challenge for the church of Jesus Christ in every age is at one and the same time both a simple one and one which is imponderable for us. What does it mean to take up one's cross? How do we embody our faith in Jesus Christ in such a way that we begin to look like God? Jesus called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone had become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their soul? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Many of us grew up with stories of missionaries, didn't we? Mostly from the Victorian era. Those who went off to uncharted countries with the gift of the gospel to reach out to others with the good news of Jesus Christ. Figures like David Livingston and Albert Schweitzer were even in our school readers. On sun, in Sunday school, we may have learned about Canadian Presbyterians who went off to places like the South Pacific, men like George Leslie Mackay who went to Taiwan, or John Geddes, missionary to the New Hebrides. And while today we must acknowledge the colonizing influences that these missionaries had on the lands that they visited, they were the embodiment of setting aside all else to take, upon, take up one's cross and follow Christ. That's why we learned of them in Sunday school. But what does that mean for the church today? Where does the gospel meet the streets of Cornwall. Or as a mentor of mine began asking congregation several congregations several years ago in his work as a church consultant, if your church ceased to be today, would anybody in the neighborhood notice the difference? pick up one's cross and follow Jesus is one of those realities which does not fit easily into the story of our daily lives. Just as 
Jesus, the suffering Christ, does not fit. Just as the image of God, who is bigger and greater than we are, does not fit. In a world that is dominated by a narrative of consumerism and wealth acquisition, the story of the cross just doesn't make any sense anymore. Perhaps it never did. That indeed was why Peter struggled. He struggled because the image of the suffering Christ that Jesus said to his disciples when when Peter made his confession did not fit and did not make sense. Not then, not now. Except, except for this reality, that from time to time we arrive at those moments in our own lives, we witness those moments in the lives of other people when the dominant narrative of our culture just doesn't work. When we have to wrestle with the death of a loved one or a life with chronic pain, when someone encounters an experience of injustice and things that just don't make sense to us in our world, then all of a sudden, the ridiculousness of of the gospel starts to be real, starts to be not ridiculous anymore, but the only thing that can help. When we begin to realize that there is an ever-increasing amount of months at the end of the money, and when we wonder what our children and our grandchildren are going to face in their lives if this trend keeps going on into the future, it is at moments like these that the door is opened just a bit. Just a crack. And the light starts to get in. As we move through the season of Lent this year, we walk with Jesus toward the cross, his cross. And there we will witness life given out of death and hope provided from despair. What is the cross that you will pick up this year? How can you bring forth in the lives of those that you encounter each day true life? Life that is freed from the narrative of scarcity in our world and a life that gives hope. How will we give hope to those who dwell in hopeless and light to those who are in darkness? How will we as a congregation do these things? We begin by looking for God in the mirror. Not the God that looks like us, but the recognition that the God that God indwells in us. He has created us in his image and sends us forth to be God's people. The God who is known to us in the suffering of this world and in the cross and resurrection that lies just beyond the darkness, somewhere in there, the cross becomes true for us.
Thanks be to God. Amen.